Good morning. Our scripture begins with Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then we have Genesis 2, verse 18a. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And then we'll turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you because you are good and you are gracious to give us your word, to give us the sweet fellowship of your church. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we reflect on your gospel grace this morning. And I pray, Lord, that your your word would be clear to your people, despite my own inadequacies. I thank you, Lord, that you are enough for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it happened. I did it. I said the words. Words that hurt a dear friend. You see, we had been through a difficult time together, wading through a challenging situation, generally on the same page, until that day. We were mostly in agreement. But I said words. A direct criticism that cut deep and was not delivered with grace. And they were words that may have not hurt so much if he and I both didn't know that I thought them to be true. Because they couldn't be taken back. Not any more than withdrawing a dagger from a wound can bring healing. Truth without grace. Self-centered truth. It caused wounds I could not take back. Scripture says faithful are the wounds of a friend. But what about when a friend speaks like an enemy and cuts just a little too deep? No simple apology could bring healing. You know, Christian community, fellowship, is hard. It can be incredibly sweet and full of joy, but it can also bring pain because we're sinners. The church is not a mausoleum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Perhaps you've heard that before. But yet sometimes we come in through these doors thinking we should find perfection. We find joy and pain 
at the same time. Community is hard. It can be so hard, in fact, that we can run from it when we've been wounded by it. I don't know what your experience with community, with Christian fellowship is, whether it's been amazing and full of richness and depth, or it's been painful, or both, as in my case. But what I want you to see today is that it's worth it. It's worth it. In fact, it's essential for you because it is what you were made for. It's what we were made for. Fellowship, as simple as that. As we look at these scripture texts from Genesis and Acts, my message for you, what I hope you'll take away from this, is that we are people made in the image of a triune God. Three in one. And as people made in the image of a triune God, we flourish through loving, interdependent fellowship, not isolation. We can only flourish through loving, interdependent fellowship, not isolation. Um, Towards the end, we'll look at this word, which is in your outline, koinonia, and what it means in depth. And as we explore this theme of Christian fellowship, we'll be following the same pattern we have every week in this sermon series, looking at fellowship through the lens of God's big biblical story of creation, fall into sin, and how it corrupts our fellowship, and then how Christ redeems and restores good fellowship. But let's start with creation. Jill read for us a passage we've heard several times in this sermon series, and that's intentional. I want us to be a people who continually go back to created design when we understand and engage with the struggles we deal with in the world. So we've heard this passage again and again in this series, the account of God creating humanity. You know, one thing that's notable in Genesis 26 to 27, uh, we didn't hear 26, we just heard 27, Um, But in 26, it begins with God being referred to with plural pronouns. And then it moves to singular pronouns in verse 27. Without the object ever changing, God. It says, let us create man in our image. So he created man in his own image. You know, this points to something we already know from the rest of the creation account, um, that God is massive and complex beyond our fathoming, but it also implies something about his nature, that he is triune, three in one. We explicitly see that in how God creates the heavens and the earth at the beginning of Genesis 1. He creates the heavens and the earth, but his spirit is hovering over the face of the deep abyss. We see in John chapter 1 that the pre-incarnate Jesus is present at creation with the Father and the Spirit. In fact, John 1 says that it is through him that God created everything. Father, Son, and Spirit at creation. You know, I can only begin to approach a small understanding of this. You know, one thing that I think is is so true for us is that if God were comprehensible to you, then what you are comprehending is not God. 
Because God is so big beyond our fathoming, beyond our capacity to fully grasp and understand. But I want to emphasize why it is significant for our discussion of Christian fellowship and Christian community that God is triune. It's because God himself is unity in community. We are made for community because God himself is unity in community. He is perfect fellowship. And it is in the image of this perfect unity that he creates mankind. We are made in and for community because God himself is perfect community. You know, Jesus himself draws this comparison and he uses this line of thinking in uh, the Gospel of John and his high priestly prayer. When he's praying to the Father... May they all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they might be brought to complete unity. Do you hear that? I want them and their community to be an expression of the unity you and I have, Father and Son. You know, we can't gain a biblical picture of what it means to be human to be created in God's image, apart from our community context. We are creatures in community. That's why I had Jill read from chapter 2. Before sin enters the picture, we have this statement of something that God made being not good. Isn't that crazy? Every day of creation, it says again and again, and he saw all that he has made, and behold, it was very good. But here in chapter 2, before sin, it says, it's not good. And what isn't good? It is not good for the man to be alone. Not good for the man to be alone. You know, it's important that we sit with that statement for a moment. Because we can gloss over this and move to the creation of the woman and the human family. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But we can do that without realizing that it wasn't that Adam merely needed some help because the work was too much. So he needed a helper. No, it's that he wasn't complete on his own. It's not that creation wasn't good. It's that creation was incomplete without human community and fellowship. Without that beautiful correspondence that comes in the midst of different people coming together in fellowship. What this also implies is that we were made interdependent. Interdependent. We correspond to each other. Each has differing gifts and abilities, and only together are we fulfilled. You know, this picture of interdependence, which I'll define in in just a moment, it's reflected in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul writes to the church, to each one of you has been given a gift It has been given a manifestation, or in other words, a gift of the Spirit of God. And what's it for? Is it for your own benefit? No, it says, for the common good. You are the body of Christ, and each one is a part of it. We are one body in Christ. You know, one way to think about interdependence is to think about what it's not. It's not dependence, and it's not independence. Interdependence sits somewhere in the middle and above both of these other terms. Um, you know, I, I, when I think of independence, I think of the, 
of the college student going off to college. And I'm sorry if you're a college student or you're about to go off to college. I don't want to be ragging on you, but I, I can relate to this. You know, college students, when they go off to school, they immediately think, wow, the independence, it's great, right? I am independent. I'm on my own. But are they really independent? No, they are more dependent than you can possibly imagine. Are they writing the checks? Are, no, no. <laughs> I hear some exclamations out there. No, absolutely not. Mom and dad are, are at home working and slaving to be able to provide this wonderful education. Teachers are, are working to provide input and instruction. And here's the college student saying, yeah, I am on my own. No, you're not. There's probably, there are very few more dependent times of life than being in college. So we're not dependent we're not wholly dependent where we are just soaking in and taking and taking. But we're also not independent, fully sufficient on our own, saying, I don't need you anymore. I'm like the college student who forgets where the money comes from. No, interdependence, it does two things. It acknowledges our need and is honest about our need of others. And two, it employs our gifts in serving others. There is a giving and a receiving, a giving and a taking. And it's fully acknowledged that we are needy and we are needed. You know, there's a beautiful quote from this book. If you hadn't read it, I had recommended it earlier in the series. It's been so helpful for me because I like to think I'm not only human um, and, and I don't like my limits, but we already talked about that. Anyway, there's a, there's a quote um, that he cites from a guy named Thomas Hopko, and he says, the isolated individual is a product of man's fallen imagination. It is a product of sin. It doesn't exist. It has no reality at all. What does exist are persons in community. Persons in community. I think that's a beautiful statement that reflects reality in ways that might be uncomfortable to us because we have an independent culture, don't we? But interdependence is this mutual sharing and giving. It's part of our human design. I meet not only my own needs, but I care for yours and you likewise. You know, our culture of American self-sufficiency can at times push against this biblical concept of interdependence. And we need to let Scripture speak into and contrast with our culture. We can too often just want to sanctify our previously held notions about independence and individualism and not let scripture challenge them. But every culture is in need of that correction and challenge. You know, it can discourage people from relying on each other or seeing an obligation to meet each other's needs. Uh, you know, even the concept of Christian charity can be a hindrance to fellowship. What you'll see a little bit later um, in, as we look at this sermon is that the word used for uh, when Paul tries to collect an offering for the saints, he doesn't use the word charity to describe the activity of collecting from those with means to give to those without. He uses the term fellowship, which implies a mutual participation. Um, not just the giving of those, from those with to those without, but a mutual interdependent need being fostered by those with resources sharing with those without, and those without being generous with their prayer and their care uh, for others. 
charity can be a hindrance to fellowship because charity about giving is about giving to those less fortunate, not about admitting my need. And for some to receive charity feels demeaning because I have nothing to give in return. But in our Christian interdependence, fellowship, it's a higher value than charity because it means we need one another. We all participate in the giving and receiving. Independence, church, will never satisfy. And it's never permanent. It's always illusory. For we were designed to need one another in the image of a triune God who is perfect fellowship and community. But if that's why we're designed and how we're designed, then why is fellowship so stinking hard? Why can it leave such deep wounds? The reality is that the goodness of our interdependent design is corrupted thoroughly by sin. You know, there is no sin which does not impact our relationships with others, just as there is no victimless crime. You know, I think the way we see this most in our present cultural moment is the idolatry of the self or the individual. Perhaps you've heard that before. In our men's Bible study that meets on Thursday nights, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, and it's been a a really rich discussion. I had to miss this week, but um, I love that gathering, and I love our reflections. Um, But 1 Samuel is the story of God providing his people a king after his own heart. Um, David, who's kind of this forerunner image um, of, of Christ. But it sets the stage for this look at 1 Samuel by looking at the last verse of the book of Judges. Um, It's a time when God's people had no king. And it says of this time, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is such a good picture of a fractured, self-seeking society. That could be said of our day and age, couldn't it? Everyone does what is right in their own eyes because there is no king in the land. The priests enriched themselves at the expense of the people, and the people did whatever they desired. I think that statement is a good picture of us today. Sin idolizes the individual and individual need. The self becomes God. Rather than finding myself in the bigger story of God and his community that he is making for himself, um, my personal story becomes all that matters to me. Self-fulfillment. Self alone, self-autonomy. One way we see this practically is in the transactional nature of modern relationships. We approach relationships with a balance sheet in view. Uh, Perhaps you've done this before. Perhaps you've had someone do this to you or you've seen this. It's very common in the workplace. But I want to talk about marriage. In a marriage, what this looks like is, am I obtaining a return on my investment with this person? Am I fulfilled by this relationship? Marriage becomes, in our society, conceived of not as an institution of covenantal commitment and mutual self-giving based on a promise, but as a compact in which two people come together to help each other become their best selves. Thus, the balance sheet is always asking, am I gaining the benefit I hope for? And when the answer is no... Well, we don't fight through it. Commitment breaks down. You know, the same is true of our approach often to community and to fellowship, even oftentimes in the church. 
When we look at church with a modern consumer mentality, we actually destroy our own ability to experience true community because true community can only be experienced as we are invested in it, as we embrace interdependence, not merely dependence. If my participation in church is all about private spiritual benefit and personal growth, then I will actually get neither Because God has seen it fit to bring about growth only as we are invested in one another. I only grow as I give myself in community for the benefit of others. That's how God designed humanity. And that's why he built the church. We grow by embracing interdependence, not by consuming spiritual service offerings like we're at McDonald's or Target or Amazon. That's probably more accurate. You know, Kelly Capick, again, in this book, You're Only Human, uh, he writes, it takes the whole church to be the body of Christ. Serving and depending on others constitutes a twofold dynamic of giving and receiving that builds up the community in faith, hope, and love. It takes all of us to be the body of Christ. The story of Scripture in which we find ourselves is always bigger than ourselves. If you're feeling distant from God today and isolated, the answer to where to go in the midst of that struggle is likely not to go off and find yourself in isolation because you're human. You're a creature in community. It's to ask, am I in community? Are you losing a sense of transcendence or the presence of God in your life? You're not going to find it by looking inward. It's actually worship in the community of God's family. That's the answer to the loss of that experience of the presence of God. We need one another and we were made to experience God chiefly in fellowship in this mutual giving and receiving in the church. Before I look briefly at the pattern of fellowship, I do want to address one big issue, though. It can be really easy for pastors to address the subject of fellowship without speaking to the reality that some have experienced tremendous hurt in what should have been life-giving fellowship in the church. Church hurt is a real thing, and we need to be gentle with those who have experienced it. There truly are too many stories of abusive leaders and even sexual abuse in ministry contexts. Think of Ravi Zacharias, but I'm sure you could think of examples that are closer to your life and home. These things are real. They happen. They have a devastating impact on the ability of people to feel safe and welcome and experience the goodness of God's presence in the church. When trust has been broken, we need to be gentle and patient with people, for trust takes time to restore, and some hurts leave permanent wounds. I do want to encourage you, though, that if this is part of your story, when you look at Jesus' ministry, you could actually see it as an indictment against abusive leadership in the family of God. After all, where did he go to overturn tables? It's not in Pilate's court. It was in the house of God. It was the Pharisees' tables where they were abusing the people by turning a house of prayer 
into a den of thieves. If this is your story, I do want to encourage you. It can be essential to take time away from close fellowship when harm has been done. But I also want to challenge you. True healing and wholeness for you, whatever hurt you've experienced, it will not ultimately occur apart from fellowship. Because you don't cease to be human when you suffer. We need to re-engage, not necessarily in the same place or situation, but among God's people in a healthy fellowship. Because that's where we were designed to grow. Relationships always run the risk of causing harm in our sinful world, but we cannot grow without them. We cannot grow in Christ without the church. That's where we come to how Jesus restores our fellowship through the cross. You know, last week, Herb shared a wonderful sermon from Acts 2, the day of Pentecost on our Missions Emphasis Sunday. It was when God's Spirit filled his disciples with power for bearing witness to him in the world. But the first thing we see after that tremendous event is the radical reshaping of their community life. It's this really cool picture that that Jill read for us. They devoted themselves to four things in their fellowship. One was the apostles' teaching. Two was fellowship. Three, the breaking of bread. And four, prayer. When Jesus ascends and sends his spirit, this is the community life he produces. And I want to start, um, as we look at this briefly, by zeroing in on this word fellowship. Because in a way, it sums up the rest and is the category through which we understand all of Christian relationships. It's this Greek word koinonia, which is used frequently throughout the New Testament, but in a variety of ways. It's translated fellowship, but there's layers that we can add to that to help understand the depth of the term. Um, It describes really three things primarily. One is our relation to God in Christ, that we have fellowship with God. Um, Two is our relation to God's people in the church. Our fellowship with God produces fellowship with his people. And three, our mutual care for one another, our serving one another's needs. Let me share share with you a few examples. In 1 John uh, 1, 3, John, sorry, in 1 John 1, 3, John writes that he shares the gospel with the church so that they may have fellowship with him and them together with the Lord. Fellowship is in the truth which holds us as different and disparate people together. The truth of the gospel of grace sets us all as equals before the cross and thus unites different people together as one in him. Separately, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul uses the term fellowship to describe the Corinthian church's generous gift to support another congregation in need. This harkens back to what I I spoke about earlier, um, how the Christian model for generosity and sharing is not merely charity, but it's fellowship. Because it's described there as fellowship. They are participating with this other church in the act of giving and receiving. Fellowship gives and receives. It's sharing to meet the needs of brothers and sisters and receiving benefit by admitting our need. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul describes participation in the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, as a fellowship in the body and blood of Christ. 
And the result of participating in this table meal is that we are in fellowship with each other. That's why I love celebrating the Lord's table. And I I love celebrating it often because it reminds us week in, week out that we are one body. It is a rhythm of life that is meant to knit you together, even as you've been knit together by faith. For him, breaking bread and the Lord's table together, it signifies our fellowship in Christ. As he says there, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's table overcomes and transcends the differences that separate us in the world. For we all receive together from the one bread and the one cup. So what is fellowship or koinonia? It is loving, interdependent, committed sharing of Christ and his benefits in the church community. I want to return to the list of four activities in in Acts 2 that help us see what this looked like for them. It was teaching, fellowship, sharing, giving, receiving, the breaking of bread and prayer. These are the rhythms of worship. In fact, you could have described an early church worship service there. Receiving teaching from God's word, sharing our gifts with one another in interdependence. That's why giving is a part of our corporate worship. Even though we don't pass the plates anymore, we reflect on what we are giving in our times, talents, and treasure because biblically it's part of our worship. It's part of how we participate in the fellowship of the church. Breaking bread, they would eat together every time they gathered. I would not mind that for this church. You know, there was a wonderful tradition we had in in the church where I was an elder of fourth Sunday prayer and potluck. And we'd gather whatever people brought, we'd eat. Um, We'd all participate in cleaning up. um, And then we'd pray together afterwards on a Sunday. And it was a wonderful rhythm for life as a community. I will take, I promise you, I will take every opportunity I have for us to have table fellowship together because I think it is such an important part of a rhythm for church life. Breaking bread together. But that term breaking bread also implies the Lord's table. It's a reference to the Lord's Supper in which they would celebrate regularly when they ate together. Acts 27 says that um, this daily rhythm became a weekly one when they gathered together on the Lord's Day to break bread. In fact, breaking bread became such a dominant theme of their gatherings for worship that they called the gathering breaking bread. Not even always worship. I think that's pretty cool. I love food. And I love all the food you all cook. It's great. But a constant rhythm, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, the Lord's table, praying. And what's the result of this? What's the result of this? It's effective ministry. It's generosity with joy and contentment. That's what we see in those verses following that initial description of their fellowship. Effective ministry, generosity with joy and contentment. The effect of this is spirit-wrought koinonia that enriches and builds up the body. Notice what God is doing here in the church. The story he's restoring. Humanity was created for interdependent fellowship but was fractured by sin. And when he sends the spirit, the first thing that happens is they are back together the way they were designed to be. And that's what the church is to be. 
This outpost of the restored community of God's people in koinonia with one another. And as they bless one another, as we bless one another in, in, our, in our love, in our sharing, in our compassion, in our forgiveness, in our grace, what happens is that the world sees the truth of the gospel we proclaim. Acts 2, that beautiful sermon, that beautiful Mission Sunday, was not enough on its own. It had to be lived out in the church, or the message is empty. Words are not enough. We must be a picture of the new humanity, to borrow the words of Ephesians, that God is creating through Christ Jesus, for the world to believe that what we say is true. You know, coming back to that story I said at the beginning, my own story of a time that I harmed somebody in Christian fellowship with words, I am so grateful that we had such committed koinonia fellowship, that we were able to work through a process of healing such that our relationship is stronger than it ever was before. That's what koinonia can do. It is characterized by keeping promises, not transactional relationships. If I had a balance sheet perspective, if my friend had a balance sheet perspective on that relationship, it would have been over. But because there was this loving commitment to move forward, he was able to give me the space to repent. And he was able to do the work of forgiveness. And he was able to do the work of confessing. And I was able to do the work of forgiveness. And together we learned more about the grace of the gospel through that exchange. Brothers and sisters do not have transactional relationships with each other. That's why we take church membership vows and we take them seriously. We keep our promises. And in the process of investing ourselves in each other's lives, we grow and we thrive and we flourish, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of sin, because God is good and his spirit is among us and at work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the goodness of fellowship and community. Lord, we confess that we are sinners who fall short. We cause wounds and we harm. But Lord, we also speak life into each other's lives as we share with one another your word and your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love one another deeply. That you would foster in our community true koinonia fellowship that displays the beauty of your gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. Let others look at us and see that you are real. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.